Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Welcome to The Beat. I'm Katie Fang in for Ari Melber. We've got a lot to get to tonight, including the massive legal setbacks for Donald Trump's coup insiders, Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. Neil Katyal will be here for that. Also tonight, new revelations on Justice Clarence Thomas's financial scandals as he cozied up to sympathetic billionaires. But we start with Donald Trump's alarming embrace of authoritarianism, fascism and racist rhetoric adopting toxic rhetoric to dehumanize and scapegoat immigrants in terms that experts say echo the worst dictators of the 20th century. Trump's newest comments sparking headlines and backlash and raising new questions about MAGA enablers in Congress. After Trump targeted immigrants in language historians say was identical to Adolf Hitler's language about Jews. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. Experts pointing out, quote, the term blood poisoning was used by Hitler in his manifesto Mein Kampf in which he criticized immigration and the mixing of races. This is at least the second time Trump has used the phrase on camera. He also has used it on social media. The White House quickly condemning it, saying Donald Trump is, quote, echoing the grotesque rhetoric of fascists. In 2015, Trump launched his campaign with an attack on Mexican immigrants. In 2017, one of his first actions in office was the notorious Muslim ban, which the courts forced him to amend. That same year, after white supremacists marched through Charlottesville, he shocked even close advisors by saying there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. And a second Trump term could be more dangerous. The AP reports Trump would direct, quote, the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. The New York Times reports that Trump would round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. Now more than ever, Trump is being more explicit and reckless in his language and rhetoric less than a month before the Iowa caucus. As Trump's critics warn, this is an active rolling test for democracy and for American values. Joining me now is Michael Steele, former RNC chair and MSNBC political analyst, and Michelle Goldberg, columnist with The New York Times. My thanks to both of you for getting us started this evening. Michael, I'd like to start with you. Trump's language, we know, has always tested the limits of decency, but it's all becoming beyond the pale. It's almost like he's testing how far he can push this to a whole new level. What's your reaction? Well, my reaction is straight up, where's the outrage? It happens. It had been happening. I don't. I don't hear Americans out there going, "Wait a minute, hold up, time out." That's not. That's not who we are. That's not what we want. But maybe it is. I mean, I think just we just need to be honest. I mean, you you get 
when the Biden campaign or a Democrat or someone who is in the democracy space calls this out, what's the typical reaction to it? Oh, it's partisan. Oh, it's political. We sort of water it down. And and then the press continues to cover it like it's, you know, it's news and it's it's, you know, part of the horse race. It's not a part of the horse race. It, it is it is antithetical to everything we stand for at our core, or at least we used to before Trump. So, you know, I think we need to, to come to grips with the reality uh, that people out there like this stuff. They lean into it a little bit. It resonates with them, whatever, how, however you want to describe it. It sets up a bigger problem going into this upcoming election, in my view. You know, Michelle, I'll share with you that sometimes on social media specifically, I get some comments from people that are like, look, we're, we're tired of the Trump coverage. We're tired of hearing about Trump. We're tired about listening to this. And no matter how much I and others try to beat the drum, you know, sometimes they're saying we know what he is. We know what it is. But Michelle, in that vein, are you worried that too many Americans have kind of just grown numb to this type of outrageous conduct by Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, I'm terrified. And I think that one thing he does when he makes these sort of comments, you know, barely paraphrasing Adolf Hitler, is that he keeps kind of raising the bar for what's considered outrageous. And so, frankly, Trump saying things that are fascist, that are racist, that are authoritarian, isn't kind of news in the classic sense. I mean, I think we should be treating it as news, but it really is a dog bites man story. It's something that's unsurprising. It's something that happens again and again. And it's something that we've all, to some extent, been forced to become, if not accustomed to, as you said, sort of numb to. And I think one of the big challenges of for Joe Biden and for Democrats in general is both making it clear that Donald Trump has been very forthright about what he intends to do in the second term, ways in which, and that he would be unconstrained by the law, even more so, I think, than in a first term, and unconstrained by any sort of aids that come from the traditional Republican Party. And he keeps, you know, his, his aides have said, for example, that they plan on day one to, um, or there's been reporting that his aides on day one plan to invoke the Insurrection Act, to immediately crack down on protests. And I think because people are weary and exhausted, it will be very hard to sustain the same sort of pro-democracy mobilization that was able to push back on Trump when he was first elected. So I think things will be much, much worse. And the problem is, is that people, I think, both have kind of forgotten just how bad it was and just how much it took to contain Trump the first time. And also we're kind of sick of hearing about it. And, you know, maybe that will change as he wins, he's almost certainly going to win the Iowa caucus. He'll win the first few presidential primaries as the fact that there's going to be a Trump rematch becomes more real to people who might be kind of in denial about it. Maybe that will change. But yeah, for now, he's he's managed to coarsen political dialogue so much that things that should be shocking aren't. You know, Michael, you spoke about this a couple of minutes ago. One incredibly striking and I find to be just so disappointing aspect of all of what we're talking about is the lack of outrage on the right specifically. Mm -hmm. Take a quick listen to the sound. Take a quick listen. 
Look, I, I think it's highly unlikely that Donald Trump's ever read High Mind Kampf. He was talking about the border. He was talking about people coming from other countries, coming from prisons. And they wanted to focus all the Sunday shows, Lawrence, on the word he used, poison. He was just trying to say, we want to keep America, America. We're talking about language. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. So, Michael, it's not just Trump that's doing the bad thing. It's the enablers that are doing the bad thing. And, you know, if you were to ask Lindsey Graham, do you believe that immigrants are poisoning the blood of this country directly? You know, he equivocates on it. And then Brian Kilmeade from Fox, we all know why they're kissing the the proverbial you-know-what. And then when you, you know, have somebody like Mark Short saying, I doubt that Trump has read Mein Kampf. I don't disagree with Mark Short. I don't think Trump has the capacity intellectually to read, but it's not the point, right? These people enable Trump to be able to say this with zero, zero consequence. Well, and and that's a a critical point here because they have to rationalize their own role in all of this. When it all comes to uh, this conversation where you have the, the leading candidate for the Republican Party telling Americans he's going to be, you know, retribution for for Americans who agree with him. He's going to be the guy who's going to go fight and take people out that, you know, immigrants and and others coming to this country, whether from Africa or other parts of the world are poisoning um, the American bloodstream. Uh, Yeah. Uh, What is Lindsey Graham going to say to that? except, you know, sort of try to dumb it down and make it all go away with some, you know, offhanded comment. The reality of it is the stain is on you. Liz Cheney made it very clear during the January 6th hearing when she, with the opening bell, made it very clear, this stain is on you. And no matter how you try to avoid it or dress it up or put a clean shirt on, it's on you. It's embedded in your bloodstream because you're the one who injected the poison. And so the reality of it is we got to call that out. We've got to be honest about that because I think there there's things greater at stake for us uh, as a country. Um, each one of us on this on this screen right now suffer consequences in a a Donald Trump second term. Uh, And because we have stood up against uh, this kind of hot rhetoric, destructive rhetoric, uh, this very divisive racist rhetoric um, that uh, we've tried to share with others is harmful. There is nothing good that will come from it. And the man means what he says. He means what he says. And a lot of people want to throw, oh no, he, he hasn't read or he doesn't believe it. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Michelle, I want to stay on this topic quickly of Trump's enablers. Today, Axios reporting on how Congress would be, quote, more Trumpy and compliant in a second Trump term. You know, Michelle, we've talked about this before. Even stupid children like Donald Trump learn from their mistakes, right? And there's a very real concern that the enablers end up being installed in positions of power to be able to, you know, facilitate what Trump wants to do. But but of, along the vein of what we've been talking about, about the echoes of fascism um, using language like blood poisoning, you know, we remember Nuremberg. We remember the, the party line from the Nazi foot soldiers all the way up to, uh, you know, the elite that said well, we were just following orders or we were just doing what we were supposed to do. It's exactly going to be the same thing. I mean, do you agree? 
Well, I would say that, that some of that, you know, we were just doing what the president wanted us to do was a, a defense, a failed defense, but it was a defense that a lot of people who were arrested for the insurrection on January 6th made. And so, yes, I do think that Donald Trump has learned from his first administration that he can't just you know, because I don't think he was expecting to win, they didn't have a plan for a transition and certainly not a workable plan for a transition. Now they do. Now they have gone through and very methodically made a plan to purge the civil service bureaucracy, replace it with loyalists, replace it with people who will not try to thwart Donald Trump's wildest ideas, but are going to carry them out. And so, you know, and, and the Republicans that maybe would have pushed back, the John McCain's, the Jeff Flake's, um, the, they're all gone. You know, he has remade the party in his image. Michelle Goldberg, as always, it's good to see you. Michael Steele, you're staying with us. Don't go anywhere. We need to get into Trump's other comments, praising Vladimir Putin's attack on democracy. Plus, a very bad day in court for two of Trump's co-defendants. We've got Neil Katyal here on that. And the radio icon who's interviewed presidents and world leaders, NPR's Steve Inskeep, is here to talk about divisions in America. The man with the golden voice and a whole lot more when we're back in just 60 seconds. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. I want to turn to some more troubling and disturbing rhetoric we heard from Trump this weekend. After parroting Hitler, Trump also quoted Putin. Take a look. Vladimir Putin of Russia says that Biden's, and this is a quote, politically motivated persecution of his political rival is very good for Russia because it shows the rottenness of the American political system, which cannot pretend to teach others about democracies. So that's exactly what it sounds like. A U.S. presidential candidate launching a full-throated attack on American democracy, making the baseless accusation that the indictments against him are politically motivated, and defending those convicted of violent crimes related to the January 6th insurrection. What happened to those people, come to think of it? They're not in jail with the J6 hostages. I don't call them prisoners, I call them hostages. They're hostages. Here's a fact check. They are not hostages. They went through the legal system and were found guilty after breaching the United States Capitol. Some even convicted of crimes as serious as seditious conspiracy. Trump's assaults on democracy and the rule of law have been met with widespread condemnation. Here's how one expert explained it to The Washington Post. Quote, Donald Trump sees American democracy as a sham, and he wants to convince his followers to see it that way, too. 
Joining me once again is Michael Steele, former RNC chair and MSNBC political analyst. Michael, thanks for staying with us. You know, these new comments, the Vladimir Putin ones, the Viktor Orban, mm -hmm. how much he loves him, the whole, you know, bromance that he has with those dictators. Those comments come on the heels of Trump also saying, as we know, that he would be a dictator for one day, although we know that's not true. It'd be from day one onwards. I struggle, Michael, as I know you do, with the fact that this is not a five alarm fire for everyone. I, I, again, I if you're a MAGA person, that's 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 your thing and you'll suffer. But why is this not a five alarm fire like it is for the rest of us? I'm, I'm struggling with this. Because people, I think people have rationalized people. There's been this inundation and everything is kind of dumped in the political bucket. Right. And so when you dump it in the political bucket, people just kind of like, well, it's not as serious. It doesn't mean as much. It's all politics. And they begin to disaggregate. And, and to explain it away and take some stuff and just put it aside. Then you layer on top of that uh, grievances and, you know, hurt feelings and fear of people who look like you and me, right? Oh my God, mm -hmm. we're being run over by, you know, all these folks who aren't white. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, we've only been here for 400 years, but okay, we'll, we'll work it out. You know, it's just... It's just mind -boggling, uh, boggling to me how susceptible people still are to this rhetoric. And it just really says that Donald Trump is tapped into a thing with folks that they just feel unhindered, un unleashed in how they really feel about their fellow Americans. And, and it's, some of it's been pent up, I'm sure, Others of it is just part of the ongoing timeline um, from the very beginning of the founding of the country. Um, and, and I just think we have to work through it. We tend not to want to work through these things. Um, we just want to sort of dismiss them. But this we have to work through. We have to figure out whether or not we love this country enough to fight for it. And you have some people who've made up their mind that they do. But they love it in a different way. They love it where you and I aren't part of the story. And, the, and, 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 and those who have their own experience of America that doesn't fit into some perfect bucket are not part of that story. America's story is the aggregation, not the disaggregation, but the aggregation of all those things that make us unique, that make people still want to come here from far lands. So we've got a lot to work out right now, but seemingly there are some of us who don't want to. Michael, I'm relieved my late father isn't here anymore. He came to this country from Korea with nothing because he believed in the American dream. But according to Donald Trump, people from Africa, Asia, um, mm -hmm. and other countries were poisoning the blood in America. We have no value. We do nothing. Michael, these conversations we're having, though, this is total deja, deja vu. We have these conversations leading into, you know, the, the prior election. We continue to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And is there low hanging fruit? Steve Inskeep's going to be on later on in the show to talk about his book, you know, Differ We Must. I'm excited to speak to him about it because he talks about Abraham Lincoln finding some common ground there. But you know, I'll talk to him about it later, but Michael, I don't know if there's a common ground that can be found. Well, you know, that's it's an excellent point, and it's an important approach because what America looks like tomorrow 
And tomorrow is not just the next day, but it is a generation from now, several generations right from now, begins with how we envision that. If you envision America where, you know, Katie Fang and Michael Steele aren't there, okay, that's that's one thing. But if you envision America where we are, along with so many others, that's a different conversation. And I think people need to figure out how to, to work through that tension. America was never 1954 white picket fences, mom at home in April waiting for dad to come in, who was the sole breadwinner, two kids who got straight A's in school, right? America was never that. That 1950s version of America wasn't there for black folks and it wasn't there for white folks. It wasn't there for Asians. It wasn't there for anyone else because we all had to struggle through what we were going through. And a lot of people use race, they used exclusion, they use segregation as a way to justify their their sense of where they were in this collective tribalism, what we call it today, was the same thing back then. So Donald Trump wants to paint this image of America, make America great, great again, make it white again. Baby, I'm sorry, that America never existed. And, and so that's what people have to come to grips with. I want an America with the Michael Steele, Katie Fang thing going on. Michael Steele, <laughs> thank you, you for being here as always. It's good to Alrighty. see you. And later in the show, exactly what I was talking about, the special guest of how the party of Lincoln became the cult of Trump. Plus, revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas and why so many billionaires have helped him out. But first, Neil Katyal on that very bad day in court for two of Trump's RICO co-defendants and for Donald Trump. The latest news is coming up. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Tonight, some major legal setbacks for two of Trump's top allies. A federal appeals court rejecting Mark Meadows' bid to remove his Georgia RICO case from state court to federal court. The scathing rebuke by a panel of three judges undercutting Meadows' argument that the allegations in his indictment fall under the purview of his official duties as White House chief of staff, saying, quote, whatever the chief of staff's role with respect to state election administration, that role does not include altering valid election results in favor of a particular candidate. This is a devastating blow to Meadows' legal strategy seeking a more favorable jury pool or to get the charges dismissed altogether. It also comes as Rudy Giuliani is getting sued again by two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, in response to Giuliani's continued false claims against them while on trial for defamation. That trial ending with a whopping $148 million judgment against Giuliani, with little evidence that he will actually be able to pay what he owes. New reports tonight say that Giuliani is likely going to file for bankruptcy. 
And even while facing financial ruin and criminal charges, his loyalty to Donald Trump is unshakable. You're America's mayor. Why are you willing to risk it all for Donald Trump? I'm a man of principle. I've always been a man of principle. Uh, This is a fight of principle. The election of 2020 has to be exposed because if not, our country will no longer be a democracy. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Neil, I mean, every time that man opens his mouth, he's, I see dollar signs just coming flowing out of his mouth. But let's start with Mark Meadows. Big L today, big loss in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. For those that are into this, William Pryor, Chief Judge William Pryor, a what some people call a conservative judge on the 11th Circuit, wrote this opinion where all three judges agreed that Mark Meadows is not going to get removal right now. Yeah, I don't think that this is quite the holiday gift, Katie, that Mark Meadows was hoping for. Um, It was, to put it mildly, a total body slam. As you say, this opinion was written by Chief Judge Pryor, who's not just something some people call conservative. He's a legendary conservative jurist, extremely conservative, and he had none of it with respect to Meadows' arguments. And to basically summarize what this long opinion says, Chief Justice Pryor just basically said, look, If you're the White House chief of staff, launching a coup is not in your job description. That's the opinion, plain and simple. And so I'm going to lean into you as our resident Supreme Court guru. You think SCOTUS is going to take this up? Because you and I both know Metis is going to appeal to the Supreme Court now. Yeah, he'll certainly try. I don't think there's any chance that this case is going to be um, something that the Supreme Court's going to grant and rule for Mark Meadows on. This is going nowhere fast. So DA Fonnie Willis has indicated, though, Neil, no plea deals for Meadows, Giuliani and Trump specifically. Do you think that Meadows goes to trial or does he go hat in hand asking for a plea deal? Um, You know, Meadows has always been very cagey about this. So, you know, I do think that this gives the district attorney in Georgia a lot of power over Meadows. And hopefully he will cut a deal because at the end of the day, um, the truth has to come out. And there's been basically a huge cover up. And Fawny Willis's strategy has been to try and flip people. And she has flipped certain people. But obviously, the chief of staff is in the room where it happens. You know, he would be the most important person. But I suspect that Willis or Jack Smith won't do this without some agreement to jail time. What Meadows is accused of doing is unforgivable and can't be something that is just, you know, get a slap on the wrist just because you testify against Donald Trump, someone who I think most of us all know is already guilty. And along the vein of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, Rudy Giuliani, that new lawsuit that's been filed by Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman is asking the judge for an injunction to permanently bar Giuliani from lying about them. Let's listen quickly, Neil, to what he said last week outside of the courthouse. I told the truth. They they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for proof that never came because he never put on a defense and he didn't take the stand, putting that aside. How is all this going to play out for him? I mean, every time he opens his mouth, he defames somebody. And by the way, footnote, that's the same thing that Donald Trump does to people like E. Jean Carroll. Every time he opens his mouth, he defames people. Yeah, I mean, Rudy Giuliani, Katie, was given 148 million reasons to simply stop lying about these women. And he still can't stop himself. 
Um, it's not clear he has any more money. So this isn't about more money. This is about just stopping him from opening his mouth and continuing to libel these people. Um, and, you know, I think that the judgment last week sends a signal that the courts are not going to tolerate this kind of nonsense. And so if I'm Rudy Giuliani or heaven forbid Rudy Giuliani's lawyer at this point, I'm quite, quite scared. And you may be not getting paid. As we know, he's being sued by one of his former lawyers. Neil Katyal, as always, thanks for being here. Happy holidays, my friend. Thank you. To you as well. And for more from Neil, you make sure to check out msnbc.com slash opening arguments. And still ahead, new lessons from President Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War era as democracy is on the brink today. But first, brand new revelations from ProPublica about how Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas ended up in the pockets of billionaire donors, hopping aboard private jets and taking fancy trips. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I've come from regular stock, and I prefer that. I prefer being around that. I also would like an RV that somebody else paid for. We're back with new stunning revelations from the Supreme Court ethics scandal that hint about why so many billionaires went out of their way to help Clarence Thomas. It goes back to 2000, when conservatives started to worry that Thomas would leave the court, and it was all about the money. ProPublica reports that Thomas talked about it directly with a GOP lawmaker. Congress should give Supreme Court justices a pay raise, Thomas told him. If lawmakers didn't act, one or more justices will leave soon. Losing Clarence Thomas, the most conservative member of the court, would have been a disaster for the right. So GOP lawmakers sprang into action, pushing for a pay raise and to try to lift the ban on justices being paid for speeches. The Republican congressman who led the effort says, quote, his, as in Clarence Thomas's, importance as a conservative was paramount. We wanted to make sure he felt comfortable in his job and he was being paid properly. Around this time, Thomas suddenly became the beneficiary of billionaire, quote, charity. They paid for pricey vacations, tuitions, loans. So by 2019, Thomas seemed just fine with his financial situation. Right now, what is the compensation of a justice of the Supreme Court? Oh, goodness, I think it's plenty. (laughs) (laughs) My wife and I are doing fine. We We don't live extravagantly, but we are fine. ProPublica says says that just a few weeks later, Clarence Thomas was flown on a billionaire's private jet to Indonesia to enjoy a vacation on a luxury yacht. Joining me now is Josh Kaplan, the reporter for ProPublica who helped break this new story. Josh, I am disgusted, and that's a very mild way to put it. Um, I'm grateful to ProPublica. You guys are tip a spear on these stories, specifically with regards to this one. I needed to ask you, is it fair to say that Clarence Thomas, by broadcasting his desire for more money while on the Supreme Court, is it fair to say that that changed the right wing ecosystem in D.C. and elsewhere? I mean, you and I both know Leonard Leo, his dark money operations, it's bankrolling every major far right legal strategy that's out there. I I don't want to say this is some sort of Rosetta Stone because there's still there's still a lot we don't know. Um, For instance, uh, these billionaires who brought Thomas uh, 
around the world gave him private school tuition, things like that. There's still no evidence that he ever raised the specter that he might resign with them specifically. But what we do know is that when Thomas was having these conversations, you know, that rumor, that chatter was circulating in conservative legal circles back around the year 2000. It was circulating on Capitol Hill. Um, powerful senators told us it was a real concern at the time. Um, and we, of course, know that uh, in the years after that, Thomas took a stream of gifts from ultra-wealthy businessmen that appears to be unprecedented in the modern history of the Supreme Court. And you know, sometimes coming from people he met very practically just met and exactly why um so many people have offered him money and other gifts over the years is still an open question uh, but understanding how he was viewing his finances in that period and how he was talking about them uh, certainly seems like important context so josh the gop lawmaker in your piece who led this effort wrote to clarence thomas back in 2000 and he wrote quote it is worth a lot of Americans, a lot to Americans, excuse me, to have the Constitution properly interpreted. We must have the proper incentives. Josh, these sentences alone are enough to stop me dead in my tracks. Properly interpreted, proper incentives. It's not code for what we know it was meant to be. I'm sorry, is it code? I said it's not code. It's pretty obvious right. what he's trying to tell Clarence Thomas, right? Yeah, no, I mean, and it's, um, and in fairness, I mean, this was a real concern at the time. I mean, it was hard to recruit uh, judges to the, it was, a, it was a challenge in recruiting judges. Thomas was not the only person who was upset with the salary. But it also, um, it is the sort of frank conversation about these financial issues in the judicial context that really never becomes public. Um, and it's, uh in these documents we've found that have been, you know, haven't seen the light of day for over 20 years. Uh, it's these conversations are laid out really explicitly. So and along the vein of salary in 2022, the average American salary was $60,000. Members of Congress made 174000 Supreme Court justices made $274,000. Members of the court, hardly paupers. Clarence Thomas knew, Josh, that his financial situation was what it was, which wasn't good when he took a lifetime appointment. Any person taking a job would know what they were walking into when it came to a salary. So was there more to it than just him, as in Clarence Thomas, looking for some type of financial padding to what he was doing for his the rest of his life? Well, yeah, I mean, by, by the standards of Average Americans, Thomas is extremely wealthy um, or doing extremely well. Um, but compared to some of his colleagues on the court, um, you know, he wasn't rich. He he didn't come from family money, and um, you know, he was forty three years old. That was relatively new when Thomas was appointed to the court to have someone become a supreme just a supreme court justice at that young of an age and so he was he didn't perhaps didn't have the savings one might have um and he'd spent most of his career working for the government and as he neared the first uh you know his 10th anniversary on the court uh, he was having more expenses come up he he took in um you know, became the legal guardian to a relative and started raising him as a son and he uh was also buying things like really expensive rvs and 
taking out a lot of debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And you know, around that period, the, the kind of turn of the century is when we've been hearing from friends and from others in the conservative legal movement that uh, it started really feeling pronounced that he was dissatisfied with his financial situation and was really feeling a lot of frustration about it. And then suddenly in 2019, it's okay, I'm getting paid enough, according to the sound that we heard. Josh Kaplan, I gotta tell you, I'm always impressed with what you guys are doing, but I also could probably find a crowdfund of enough people that would pay Clarence Thomas enough money to probably leave the bench. Thanks for being here, Josh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And coming up next, I have a special guest on how the GOP went from the party of Lincoln to the cult of Trump. Now to the attacks on U.S. democracy and fears that political clashes are sowing divisions that cannot be bridged. The word divisive, now the single most common word Americans use to describe the state of politics. Majorities of Republicans and Democrats calling members of the other party close-minded, dishonest, immoral, and unintelligent. But some of the most vicious fights concern basic facts. Earlier this year, a poll found that six in ten Republicans think the 2020 election was illegitimate. When my next guest, NPR's Steve Inskeep, interviewed Trump about this, Trump refused to have the conversation. He hung up the phone. Take People have no idea how big this issue is and they don't want it to happen again. It shouldn't be allowed to happen and they don't want it to happen again. And the only way it's not going to happen again is you have to solve the problem of the presidential rigged election of 2020. Uh, Mr. So, Steve, President, if I well, 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 I one more it. question. I want to ask about a court hearing yesterday on January 6th. Judge Amit Mehta, he's gone. Okay. So that is one way not to bridge divisions. My colleague, Rachel Mehta, recently talked with former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney about the need for a shared vision of democracy. The power of the fact that somebody who is where you are on the political spectrum and somebody who's where I am on the political spectrum are able to say, this is a five alarm fire. And we have to put that aside and be able to say, what are we going to do to come together to save the republic? Yeah, the fights that we, I think, righteously and in good faith and vehemently could have together can wait. Right. Um, If as because part of what we're defending is our. But I want a rain check to come back to have. Oh, yeah. So that rain check might have to wait as the GOP frontrunner stokes division and distrust in elections. And with that, I turn to Steve Inskeep, award-winning host of NPR's Morning Edition, the former host of All Things Considered. In 2016, he conducted NPR's exit interview of President Obama. Now he's out with a new amazing book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Steve, it's good to see you. I mentioned a minute ago how so many Americans are describing our politics today as being divided. But in your view, is that the right adjective to use? Oh, yeah, we are divided. Of course, we're always divided. And in a way, we should be. It's a democracy. We shouldn't always agree. But one of your items there pointed at a real problem, people assuming that those on the other side have bad motives, that they are bad people. Uh, which makes it very hard to accommodate them or figure out a way to deal with them in a democracy when you go straight at people's motives, when you attack their motives immediately, which is a thing that Abraham Lincoln, by the way, almost never did, even as he went through a civil war against part of the country. 
Yeah, so I was fascinated, Steve, about that in your book about Lincoln and his relationship with Joshua Speed and and the fact that even though they they differed so greatly on the idea of slavery that Lincoln still kept in touch with Speed. They stayed friends, and he would sign off correspondence to Speed, your friend forever. I mean, but Steve, is that realistic? I mean, we've gone through so much as a nation. We continue to go through so much today. Is that a really realistic view to think that there is a bridging of the divide that could happen at this point? Not always. Um, And I would not say that Abraham Lincoln got along with everybody. He did end up leading the country in a war against a large part of the rest of the country. Um, Sometimes you cannot bridge those divides. But the goal, if you're in a democracy, is to get a majority on your side, which is something that Lincoln worked very hard before the war to do and during the war to keep a majority of the Union on the side of defending American institutions, of supporting the Constitution, of supporting the federal government, of supporting the basic idea that we are one country. And in order to build that majority, he did have to overlook a lot of instances in which he massively disagreed with people. You mentioned his best friend of his life, Joshua Speed, who grew up in a slave-holding family, but Lincoln did not ostracize this guy, and they ended up on the same side in the Civil War. Joshua Speed helped to keep the Union together at a key moment. Uh, Abraham Lincoln reached out to people who didn't agree with him about immigration. They were against immigrants, against foreigners, which he was not, but he wanted their votes against slavery. He reached out to some really problematic people, didn't always succeed, but never stopped trying and ultimately won the big game, which was keeping the country together and ending slavery. Yeah, and Steve, your book also talks about how Lincoln successfully forged, created factions to be able to get the result that he was seeking. I mean, it does kind of make me wonder, though, is there enough that's left? Is there still enough meat on the bone that's left for that to happen? Because I oh. find that we are we are we really are so far apart when you have somebody who's the presumptive GOP frontrunner using language that is invoking fascism and Nazism, that that's that's very difficult for somebody to be able to to basically stomach and think that people who would like to have that person in the Oval Office again, that there's something that could be maybe like a a common ground as we talk about. Well, I'm thinking of a few things as you're talking, Katie, and it's really great to be here and have this conversation, by the way. I'm thinking about the reality that if somebody is very wrong about an issue in a democracy, they still have power because they still have a vote. We can't wish them away. We can't just disregard them because they have that power, (laughs) unless one side manages to rig the system so some people don't get to vote. But in any case, most people get to vote at the moment, and they still have that power, and you have to deal with them. And it's a matter of trying to build a coalition. I've been thinking just in the last few days about President Biden, who is trying to keep his coalition together, keep it from eroding, the coalition that elected him in 2020. And he has what I would think of as a differ-we-must problem. He has a part of his coalition that has turned against him, people who disagree with his policy toward the war between Israel and Hamas, people who passionately feel that Biden has failed to stop atrocities against Palestinians, against civilians, against children in Gaza. Now, whatever you think of that war, these are people with power who have that point of view. And a few of them have even said, I'm not going to vote at all. I'm not going to vote for Biden. If Trump wins, fine. Well, that is a problem for them. 
And it's a problem for Biden to work out or not. You would have to ask if you are Arab American, if you're from an immigrant background, if you're from a Muslim background, if you're concerned about Palestinians, do you think that a Trump administration is going to do better for you? Or do you think that you need to join in coalition with this guy who you feel is morally wrong on an important moral issue? That's a hard choice. And it's not my job to say what that choice is going to be, but I can highlight it as a journalist and as a writer of history, and it's a tough one, and a series of choices like that will decide who has the bigger coalition. And Steve Inskeep, that's exactly why people need to go and read your book, because you, you thoroughly dive into those disagreements and exactly how they came to a resolution. Steve Inskeep, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk with you. His new book is Differ, We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. And we will be right back. So that does it for me. Be sure to catch my show weekends at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Hot off the press from Maybelline, New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.